And our text this morning is John 18, verses 1 through 12. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now, Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he, so if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. Let's pray. Lord God, help us to find true pictures of Jesus and glory in this text. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. You can be seated. When people describe Jesus' walk to the cross, they often use different kinds of words, right? People will tell of the tragic betrayal of Judas. Sometimes they'll emphasize the utter injustice of the trials. Occasionally they'll point out the evil parts, the evil hearts that were there in a nation. How could these people, oh, how awful it is. They laud Jesus as a coming king and then they shout crucify him. Oh, how terrible those people were. But there's one more way to describe Jesus' walk to the cross. There's a way that's even more true to the events. There's a way that tells of what happened and magnifies the obedience of God the Son and the glory of God the Father. And that way is for us to emphasize that Jesus willingly walked to the cross. No one tricked him. No one caught him unaware. No one forced him there. Jesus went to the cross on purpose. Hebrews 12 verse 2 says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. John 10, 17 and 18, Jesus said, for this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again, this charge I have received from my Father. And in Luke 9, 51, it says, when the days drew near for him, that's Jesus, to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Over the first 17 chapters of John's gospel, we watched Jesus continually marching toward a particular moment, a particular hour, he called it, my hour. He came to earth with a purpose. 
Jesus came to the earth to lay down his life for his sheep. He came to earth to die and then to rise again. And as we rejoin John's telling of the good news, we watch Jesus march closer and closer to the cross. The first 12 chapters of this book covers about three and a half years of Jesus's ministry. And Jesus was repeatedly in conflict with the Jewish teachers because Jesus claimed to be God, to be superior to all their traditions and all their practices. And as John told us about Jesus' practices and his ministry, he repeatedly contrasts Jesus with the old covenant feasts and with the practices to show us that Jesus is the fulfillment of everything these things represented. Jesus is the fulfillment of the purpose of the sacrificial system. He's the fulfillment of the purpose of the temple. He's the fulfillment of the purpose of the Passover. He's why those things were ever given because they point to Jesus. And John showed us teachings from Jesus and he showed us glorious signs, miracles that attest to the Son of God's identity. Some of the the seven signs of John's gospel are Jesus turning water into wine healing a man's servant from miles away, healing a man who had been paralyzed for 38 years, feeding a crowd of 5,000 with one guy's lunch, walking on water, giving sight to a man born blind, and bringing a man back from the dead. That's a pretty good list, wouldn't you say? Chapter 13, the speed and focus of the account changes significantly. We had three years from chapter 1 to 12. We're going to get a few days. Honestly, we get a few hours from chapter 13 to 19. Jesus makes it clear in chapter 12 that the time for him to fulfill his purposes was upon him. My hour has finally come, he says. Chapter 13, Jesus sends Judas Iscariot away, knowing full well that Judas is going to betray him. Then the Lord spends chapters 13 through 16 teaching the disciples one last time. Chapter 17, we get a beautiful prayer that Jesus lifts to his father in which he prayed for his disciples. He prayed even for Christians who will follow in the disciples' footsteps. In John 17, Christian, if you're a Christian, Jesus prayed for you. Now, besides the seven signs I told you about that attest to Jesus, John highlighted for us seven sayings of Jesus. Seven different times when Jesus said, I am this or I am that. He claimed to be something. The Savior said, I am the bread of life, the light of the world, the door, the good shepherd, the resurrection and the life, the way, the truth and the life, and the true vine. In seven places from John chapters 3 through chapter 10, we see Jesus preach seven sermons, seven significant discourses. All of them focus on who he is in comparison to what was happening in the religious world of his day. Isn't that kind of cool? John gave you seven signs, seven sayings, and seven sermons. Well, all of these accounts, everything John tells us, it's arranged by the apostle John with a purpose. John knew what Matthew, Mark, and Luke had written. And John very intentionally chooses to highlight things that will help his readers to respond rightly. John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, John says, Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, 
But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So if you're going to read John rightly, you've got to grasp that its purpose is to help you to believe in Jesus for life. The teachings, the signs, the grand claims, the conflicts, all of them are written to show you who Jesus is and to call you to believe in Jesus so you can have life with God. The call to believe in Jesus for life, that's where we've been. And the call to believe in Jesus for life, that's where we're going. So today, we pick up our study in John chapter 18. Jesus, he's finished teaching the disciples. No more big sermons, no more big discourses like before. Instead, Jesus has his sights set on one goal. He is going to the cross and he's coming out the other side of the empty tomb. He is spending his final hours here on earth before the ultimate sacrifice, the ultimate event in the history of the universe. Jesus is marching toward what he has repeatedly referred to as, I said, his hour. John 17 verses 1 and 2, when Jesus prays, It says, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son, that the son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. That's where we've been. Does that, you feel like you're caught up? All right. Today, we are going to highlight three points Three things that call us to praise the Lord Jesus as we believe in him for life. And these points are woven through the scene that's going to unfold before us. And we're going to see them more than once. We're going to find reasons to praise our Savior as we watch the arrest of the Lord Jesus. For those of you who read the um, email newsletter that we sent out, I forgot to put quotation marks around my sermon title. The sermon is not the arrest of Jesus by Pastor Travis. (laughs) I didn't do it. It's just the arrest of Jesus. (laughs) I just want to be clear. I don't want confusion in this room. Y'all ready? Point number one. Praise Jesus for willingly walking to the cross. Praise Jesus for willingly walking to the cross. Verses one and two. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Jesus finishes praying with the disciples. He teaches the disciples. Y'all, it's probably getting close to midnight. He left the city of Jerusalem and headed east. He crossed the Kidron Valley That was a valley that had a little stream bed at the bottom. It would have only had water in it during times of really heavy rainfall. It goes downhill about 200 feet below the level of the temple's elevation. Then they they cross the stream bed. They start climbing up the other side on what we call the Mount of Olives. And perhaps the garden, we call it the Garden of Gethsemane from other passages, perhaps the garden was owned by one of Jesus' wealthy followers. You know, during his ministry on earth, Jesus was able to use the homes and the resources of followers that had more money for the sake of the accomplishment of his ministry. Now, quick side note here, by the way. All of us who have homes, all of us who have resources, we are still able to use those homes and those resources for the glory of God. 
What has God given you? You got a car? You got an extra? You got a house? You got resources? God's given that to you for the blessing of his people, for his glory. Don't forget that, okay? Now, it's good Jesus had access to a beautiful, secluded spot over Jerusalem. He could go there, he could pray, and he did. Now, it's interesting, John doesn't see fit to record for us what Jesus did in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's not in John's Gospel. John tells us nothing of the disciples falling asleep a couple of times. doesn't tell us anything about Jesus praying so fervently that his sweat became like drops of blood. That's in the other Gospels. The evangelist does not depict for us the angel coming to Jesus and ministering to him that night. No, John, last chapter, gave us a prayer of Jesus. Big, long prayer, the longest recorded prayer of Jesus. That was enough. And we learn two important things in these verses. First, we learn that Jesus and his disciples, they often went to this garden. And second, we learn that Judas knew the place well. Those two things put together are reasons that will help us know that Jesus is very much in control of what's happening here. Don't ever look at this story and think, oh, Jesus was taken advantage of. Had Jesus not wanted to be found by Judas, he most certainly would not have chosen to go to a place where he could be so easily discovered. A man on run and in hiding does not go back to his regular haunts. Jesus chose this place, and part of his reasoning seems to be that it was a place where Judas would, in fact, be able to find him. And here we stop and emphasize the first of the three points that we're going to see throughout this passage. Jesus intentionally, willingly walked to the cross. Jesus intentionally, willingly put himself in a place to be found. Jesus intentionally, willingly refused to run and hide. Praise Jesus for willingly walking to the cross. And you might say to yourself, I don't see why this is such a big call to worship, Pastor. But consider the alternative. How much smaller and weaker would Jesus look had he been captured against his will? How much smaller and weaker would Jesus look if he had been taken unaware? How much less loving would Jesus' sacrifice look to us if Jesus had been grabbed and dragged, kicking and screaming to his trials. That's not our Jesus. And if that kind of stuff had taken place, we would not be able to know with confidence that Jesus was, in fact, accomplishing the eternal plan of God. But the Son of God, out of love for God, out of love for us, out of a perfect, holy desire to accomplish the eternal plan of God, willingly walked to the cross to glorify God and save our very souls. Praise Jesus. Now, let's find our second point. Point number two, praise Jesus for being greater than all men. Praise Jesus for being greater than all men. Verse three, So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. 
Last time we saw Judas was in John 13, Jesus' celebration of the Passover meal and the institution of the Lord's Supper. I guess the institution will come after that. In 26, 13, 26, and 27 and 30, we see, so when Jesus had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you're going to do, do quickly. Verse 30 So after receiving the morsel of bread, he, Judas, immediately went out, and it was night. Jesus sent Judas out, and John tells us it was night. In fact, it was the beginning of the darkest moment in human history, the moment when mankind would attempt to destroy the Creator. And after Jesus dismissed Judas from the gathering in that upper room, Judas went out and he procured a group of temple police and Roman soldiers. Now, there were a lot of Jews in and around Jerusalem for the Passover. The Romans would have stationed a lot more military personnel in the area just to to quell the rebellion or the potential uprisings that could come from religious fervor because the Passover is, after all, a holiday about the nation getting freed from a powerful other nation. So the Romans knew to have a lot of military presence there. The Bible says that some of these men were under the authority, the orders of the chief priests and the Pharisees. They would have been the, the temple police. But the fact that there are Roman soldiers present here also indicates that the government was involved in the events of this evening. So, what's going on here is a scheme empowered by Satan, carried out through Judas, facilitated by the leaders of the Jewish nation with the strength and approval of Rome. How many soldiers were there, you ask? That's hard to say. Some people say it was a cohort. If it was a full cohort, that's between 600 and 1,000 men. The translation we have here simply says a band of soldiers. And it's tough for us to know whether John's trying to give any sort of exact group size. I don't know that they really needed a full 600 soldiers for a midnight raid on a group of 12 men. But what we know is this. The men who came, they were fully armed. They were prepared to enforce their will. Now here's the problem. Here's the problem for the men who were coming to arrest Jesus. And it's a problem for all of the rest of humanity. These men have a dramatic overestimation of their own abilities. Yeah, they got their lanterns and their torches. They got their swords and their clubs. Maybe some of them are wearing armor. Would have looked like the Ren Fair. Here's their problem. They think those things matter. As we watch the rest of this story unfold, we're going to be reminded that no strength of man has anything to do with overpowering Jesus. No man can defeat his creator. No soldier can conquer Jesus. And in this instance, we begin to praise Jesus 
as we learn from the mistakes of the sinful men marching toward the garden. Whether it's a hundred, whether it's a thousand men, they have no idea just how small and weak they really are. And in comparison to the Savior, we have no strength at all. So praise Jesus for being greater than all men. Here's the third point. Praise Jesus for keeping his own. Praise Jesus for keeping his own. Verses four and five. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. So God says, Jesus knew very well what was about to go down. He knew there was no question. Jesus knew what was going on. And he did nothing, absolutely nothing to stop it. Why? Jesus wanted to go to the cross. We said that in the first point, right? Praise Jesus for willingly walking to the cross. But as Judas and the band of soldiers in the temple police march up the hill toward the entrance of the garden, Jesus steps forward. By the way, here again, we notice details that are in the other Gospels absent in John. John doesn't tell you anything of Judas betraying Jesus. How did Judas betray Jesus? What's our, what's our story? With a kiss, right? Maybe one reason is that the kiss was completely unnecessary. The plan for Judas to kiss Jesus in greeting, which, by the way, was a traditional greeting for men of that day, right? You, you watch movies that have, like, Eastern European men, you know, they come up and they kiss on both cheeks, or, I don't know, mob movies, the mobsters do that a lot. But that was the way people greeted one another at that time. I'm glad we don't do that now. I'm, I'm barely comfortable with hugs. So, a... That was a traditional greeting back then. But Judas was like, look, I'm going to go greet a guy. And the first guy I greet is the one you should arrest. Don't let him sneak away on you. Jesus wasn't at all going to let himself be among the disciples and possibly mistaken. Jesus, when the soldiers arrived, he walked right out in front of everybody. He didn't hide in the shadows. He stepped into the flickering light of their torches and asked them, whom do you seek? In modern vernacular, who are you looking for? And they answered, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus immediately identifies himself as the guy they're trying to find. If Jesus was trying not to be caught here, he could have done several things, don't you think? Many times in the Gospels, Jesus simply slips through crowds of people who want to capture him hides and gets away. Jesus could have not identified himself and made them guess. Jesus could have shoved Philip forward and take this guy, that's him. But Jesus stepped forward and he told them exactly who he was because he wanted to walk to the cross. And in putting himself in the foreground, Jesus put the 11 faithful disciples in the background. Jesus wanted the soldiers to focus on him. Jesus was protecting his disciples, keeping them from being mistakenly arrested in his stead. Jesus watched over. He protected his own. And for that fact, we should be thankful. Now, we're going to keep reading this story. And those points that we just went through, 
they're just going to keep showing up. For example, what was our first point? Point one was praise Jesus for willingly walking to the cross. And point two was praise Jesus for being greater than all men. What's this? Verse six. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. That should shock you. Take a close look at Jesus' words that he identifies himself to the troops. They say, we're looking for Jesus. Jesus says to them, I am he. But what he says packs a punch. In fact, what Jesus says knocks the entire band of soldiers, including Judas, who's counted the standing with them or being on their side, he knocks them all to the ground. In Greek, John says that Jesus said, Ego eimi. Now, while it's fair to say that this answer is, I am he, it would also be just as fair to make it a two-word answer. The soldiers say, we're looking for Jesus, and Jesus says, I am. If you remember, Jesus has used the phrase, I am, to refer to himself in a way that makes it clear that Jesus is identifying himself as God, the God. John 8, verses 58 and 59, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of, their, out of the temple. Remember what God said to Moses back in Exodus three thirteen and 14? Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What's his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. He said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. So it's possible that right here in front of the soldiers, Jesus just called himself God. And Jesus' identification of himself along with the supernatural power of the Lord Jesus causes all of his enemies to fall to the ground. They're not jumping back in shock. This is not that somebody tripped. They are bowled over. They are, by the force and power of God, knocked to the ground. They're falling to the ground because Jesus has that kind of power. And this proves Jesus willingly walked to the cross. And he is significantly greater, significantly more powerful than any band of soldiers. The Lord Jesus had the power in himself to crush this group of soldiers. Though they were battle-hardened, fully armed, well-trained, in the presence of the Son of God, the soldiers would fall like children. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus said he could call on his father and receive the support of 12 legions of angels. That's 72,000 angels for those of you keeping score. Want to know something fun? This is not in my notes, but it's kind of fun. This week I thought, one angel of God killed how many Assyrian soldiers, y'all? 185,000. You give me 72,000 angels at 185,000 men per, that's over 13 billion people they could knock out if that happened to be their limit. Do you think Jesus needed help? Jesus could have called on 72,000 angels 
but he didn't. He wanted to go to the cross. Revisiting point number three, praise Jesus for keeping his own. Look at verses seven to nine. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I'm he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those whom you gave me. I have lost not one. I would love to see the movie, the real life picture of this, because this would have been hilarious. Jesus says, I am, and they hit the dirt. And then the dummies stand up. Can you picture the rattle of like weapon, like picking up your sword, you know, picking up your club, getting your torch back in your hand, brushing yourself off. Somebody's coughing. You know this is happening, right? I mean, y'all know, we don't like falling down. When's the last time you fell down? Was it good? They stand up, they dust themselves off. Jesus says, whom do you seek? (laughs) I wonder if the tone of their voices was a little bit different when they said they're seeking Jesus of Nazareth the second time. I get the first, whom do you seek? We seek Jesus of Nazareth. (laughs) Whom do you seek? Jesus? (laughs) Sir? (laughs) And Jesus again identifies himself, but he doesn't choose to flatten them this time. He just demands that they let his disciples go and arrest only him. Now, what makes Jesus think he has the right to tell them that they can take him and only him in and not his friends? The answer is pretty simple, isn't it? Jesus is in control. He proved it by his power. Now he proves it by telling them he will be going with them, but his disciples will not. And the fact that Jesus exercises that kind of control in this situation proves he went to the, with the soldiers only because he allowed himself to be arrested. And the way he did it also shows us he is committed to keeping his disciples safe from the attack of the lost men in the garden. Jesus will not let them be taken. Jesus will not let his plans for his church be thwarted. Jesus keeps his own. Let's revisit point two again. Praise Jesus for being greater than all men. Look at verse 10. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Not everybody is equally quick on the uptake. Peter, always eager to be the first one to do something, decides that Jesus must need his help. Apparently, Jesus flattening this entire band of soldiers and police with two words was not enough proof for Peter that Jesus had everything under control. So Peter takes out what you would call a short sword and he tries to take the head off of the first guy he can reach, which is Malchus, the servant to the high priest. And Peter manages to cut off the guy's right ear. Can you picture that? This is my right ear. If you're a right-handed person swinging from this way, what this means is Malchus must have gone like this and Peter got the ear. How What kind of swing was that, y'all? This wasn't friendly. 
Rumor has it Peter tried to apologize, but Malchus couldn't hear him. I am here to serve you. Don't judge me, by the way. It's pretty wild. Well, for whatever reason, John doesn't tell us about Jesus picking up the man's ear and healing him, which would have been a fascinating thing to see. But he does let us know that Jesus put a stop to Peter's little skirmish before it gets any worse, before other weapons get swung. And in watching the silliness of Peter's move, we remember that Jesus really is greater than all men. And revisiting point number one, praise Jesus for willingly walking to the cross. Verses 11 and 12. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. Jesus knows there's a thing before him that is appointed by his father. Jesus knows he has a mission to fulfill, a cup to drink. And Jesus intends to go to the cross. And so Jesus allowed the soldiers to bind him and lead him away. And through the entire description John gives us of Jesus' arrest in the garden, God wants you to see that Jesus willingly walks to the cross. He's greater than all men, and he perfectly keeps his own. Jesus chose a place Judas knew. He knew what was going to happen. He stepped out and identified himself. He had the power to resist had he chosen to. He demanded that he be arrested and and his disciples set free. He stopped Peter from fighting on his behalf in order that he might drink the cup that the Father had given him. Jesus, for the joy set before him, for the sake of his mission, for the glory of God, out of obedience to his Father, chose to go to the cross and we should praise Jesus. Now today, if you're not yet a Christian, I want you to let this sink in. Jesus went to the cross to become a sacrifice. He went to the cross to die in order to pay the penalty for the sins of other people. Jesus was perfect. He did not deserve to die. He died so that people like you and me could be able to be forgiven by God. And Jesus rose from the grave. He conquered death and proved that he is everything he ever claimed to be. And that he really can save your soul and give you life. Jesus will forgive anybody who will come to him in faith and ask for his grace. So if you're not a believer this morning, I want you to consider Jesus. I want you to see that you stand condemned before God without Jesus. I want you to turn away from yourself and cry out to Jesus, please, Jesus, forgive me, and entrust your very eternity to Jesus and his saving work. And Christians, Jesus walked to the cross willingly. He willingly took upon himself the greatest pain the greatest agony, the greatest spiritual torture imaginable. The Savior suffered what would, he suffered what would cost you and me an eternity in hell, and he did it for sins he never committed, and he did it all over a period of six hours one Friday afternoon. Jesus died willingly, laying down his life to purchase your pardon from God. And if Jesus was willing to suffer so much to accomplish his Father's will, how do you think you should respond to him? 
Praise and gratitude have to be central. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and the finished work of Christ alone. We should be in awe of our great Savior who accomplished our salvation. And our lives should be marked with love for Jesus, gratitude for Jesus, obedience to Jesus, and pure amazement over Jesus. Jesus willingly walked to the cross, and we should praise Jesus. Maybe praising Jesus for his greatness will also help you to trust him more. Don't you think this should make you trust Jesus more? He's the almighty God. He could have squashed that band of soldiers without breaking a sweat. Jesus is, after all, the one who spoke the stars into the sky. He did not need Peter's little sword. He didn't fear the soldiers' little clubs. Jesus is God in the flesh. What joy it is for us to serve a God who doesn't need us, but who will willingly allow us to be part of his glorious and eternal victory. Maybe praising Jesus for keeping his own will give you courage and steadfastness in the midst of a hard world. Jesus saves everyone who comes to faith in him. He won't lose you. He won't forsake you. This doesn't mean he won't maybe let you suffer in this lifetime. Some of you guys suffer pretty hard. Some people in this room suffer more than most of you will ever grasp. What it means is this. None of our suffering, none of our hardships, none of our struggles are wasted. God knows us. God saved us. God keeps us. And God will bring us out of even our graves and grant us joy with Jesus forever. Jesus willingly walked to the cross. Let's commit ourselves, Christians, to following him. Yes, it might be hard. Yes, it might be uncomfortable. But the joy at the end of the road is worth far more than anything you or I could ever give up in this life. Let's pray together. Lord God, as we bow, I just ask this. Would you, Lord, be so kind as to give us mercy, give us grace, help us love Jesus, marvel at Jesus, magnify Jesus, live for Jesus. God, for anyone who doesn't know you, I pray that you will absolutely draw them to yourself. For those who do know you, I pray that you will help us to worship you well and be faithful and encouraged. Pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.